Welcome, everyone, to Uncivilized Conversations. Today, we have a special guest, Carlos Enriquez. He has been a longtime activist. Him and his partner are hitting the streets constantly for different matters, everything from abolishing ICE, Black Lives Matter protests, and most recently, the General Iron and stopping General Iron within the 10th Ward. Welcome, Carlos. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Really, really excited to, to be able to talk. Absolutely. Me too. We're going to talk today about the General Iron, what's going on within the 10th Ward right now. Yeah. So General Iron was this metal shredder in the Lincoln Park neighborhood of the north side of Chicago that had this really uh, nasty history of you know being polluters, of being noisy, uh, allegations of, you know, like mistreatment of workers. And, you know, for, for years, the community in Lincoln Park protested against it, you know, filed all sorts of complaints. And, you know, it was a combination of that and also the city of Chicago's sort of, you know, continual project of wanting to give funding to the north side to continue to, you know, beautify all these spaces uh, for folks who have the means to enjoy them and, you know, Dive, you know, d- disinvest in 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 communities of color, and so the Lincoln Yards project, the development project that that kind of like was you know the brainchild of Sterling Bay, uh, it, was, it was like this huge developing company, and Rahm Emanuel uh, were able to like get this deal, uh, and then they used over a billion dollars of taxpayers' funds to you know basically wow. like get it set up, yeah, and then you know it was one of the first you know th- so this was like I said it started with Emanuel. But then Lori Lightfoot actually was, it was after her election that it kind of like went mm. through. Um, and you know what it like, what, what. Wasn't the, that right at the beginning? Oh yeah. Like that immediately. That was like right at the beginning of her election as well. Yeah. Yeah. People were like protesting Lincoln Yards while she was like still campaigning, you know? And. Yep. And, yep. Yeah. And, and immediately after she was elected as well. And yeah. So what it meant was that. You know, General Iron was going to have to shut down and relocate and the city kind of like put together this like backdoor deal to relocate them to the southeast side, the 10th Ward, like you said, um, which is already, um, you know, it's been an area that has long been burdened by pollution. It was the home of of steel production for decades. Um, It has also been, you know, the site of uh, landfills like around around the ward. Um, There was a struggle around petroleum coke, which is a byproduct, a really nasty byproduct of sands, uh, like oil refining. And, mm. you know, there's a super fun site right around, like right outside the ward, which is, you know, it's basically uh, this a super fun site is something that's been uh, deemed, you know, a place that needs to have like structural like repair uh, because of uh, all of yeah. the toxicity. And it's like deemed that way by the government. Yeah. And so they have all of this pollution around. And they decided that, you know, like, might as well add another polluter. And this kind of really kicked off the the sort of like fight against it kind of kicked off once it was seen as like a done deal by the city. And it was right around the beginning of the pandemic. And so you have this community that because of all of this existing pollution and the sort of like cumulative impact of all of these polluters, had seen uh, some of like the the highest rates of asthma, of like cardiovascular disease, of cancer, of all sorts of like 
you know, life-threatening illnesses. And then you add to the fact that we're dealing with a respiratory pandemic in which communities of color, such as the Southeast side that already have all these adverse uh, health effects were, you know, disproportionately affected by it. Like the cases, the deaths in black and brown communities was much higher than white affluent communities, such as Lincoln Park. And so to be in the context of this deadly pandemic, you have this this uh, area with all of this pollution already, and then you want to add another polluter. And then uh, to make matters worse, uh, the new site for General Iron, which is, was bought by this company, Reserve Management Group, which had a, a metal shredding facility already that's like expanding, is down the street from a high school and an elementary school. So, you know, home to over 2,000 students. And this facility would be in the direct, basically, airflow of this school. And, you know, for folks who don't know, like metal shredding is a really nasty process. There's what's called fluff, which is the kind of byproduct of it. There's particulate matter, which if particulate matter is something that if if you like inhale it for too long, it just like destroys the inside of your body. It's this really harmful product. Yeah. And so the culmination of all of these things kind of like kicked off this movement, like different neighborhood groups, you know, the independent political organization, the United University of the 10th Ward was involved, groups like the, the Southeast Side Coalition to Ban Pet Coke, the Southeast Environmental Task Force, the Southeast Youth Alliance, all of these groups kind of like came together to form this coalition to, to protest this, to, you know, to say that we're not going to just allow this to come into our backyard without a fight. How did you come about this organization or getting involved? How did you hear about this? I got involved because I heard about it. I was like reading about it in the news. I go, I, I have a, a little bit of a history with some of the organizers in the Southeast side. Mm. When we were fighting against the pet Coke that I mentioned, it was the, the Coke brothers and Rahm Emanuel had this deal in which they would store this byproduct piles, like hundreds of feet in the air um, out in the yeah, open. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was because they were going to ship it across the Calumet river, which is right at the edge of the, of the uh, southeast side to uh, Indiana to refine it. And people were talking about how harmful Pet Coke was. I was, you know, driving down to, for a couple like community uh, town halls to kind of, you know, talk about my activism and how I wanted to like, whatever I could do to help their struggle. And so I became, you know, connected with folks. And so once I read about this, you know, I like joined the call early in the, in the or like late spring, early summer, uh, around like allies who wanted to do something and there were some of these folks that I knew from like five six years ago and we're like hey you know always appreciated everything that you did to try to help us like how would you like to hop on to our coalition and I was like honored you know because these are folks that I yeah. like, looked up to so that's kind of how I got started oh yeah yeah that's I think that's the big thing too. I mean, I felt I was even late to the game comprehending the magnitude and what was going on because I think in neighborhoods like the Southeast side, so for people that don't know, if you're not from Chicago or not as familiar with what's going on, Lincoln Park is a predominantly white neighborhood now. It has evolved. It is also a higher income tax bracket average. So when that hit Lincoln Park, the complaints about it, because they had very similar complaints, they said, hey, it gets in our lungs. It causes numerous health conditions. But pushing it to the southeast side, like you said, it's a dumping ground in so many different ways. But it's almost like 
time and time again, we see that we can't count on the people to like the proper legislation so that our community has come together, you know, and it took kind of a hunger strike and, you know, for people to be able to reach. And it just is so far down on a newsfeed sometimes if you don't have somebody that's a part of an organization like that, you genuinely don't know because it is affecting Southeast side. And again, largely people of color bringing light to that, what is a good way to go about if somebody's like, you know, I just found out about this. I want to get involved. I want to help spread the word because I know that, you know, social media has a tendency of working the algorithm where if you're looking for it, it's there. But how do we get the next tier, the next step for people to care? Because ultimately this is in our air. Even if you don't give a shit about anybody else and you're very selfish, it'll eventually get to you if you're in Chicago. So what can people do? moving forward? Yeah, I know that's an excellent question. And like you said, you know, obviously like the Southeast side kind of like sees the direct impact of this, but like they, you know, they're, they're not in like a glass bubble or anything like that, right? Like the air that they breathe yeah. will eventually like get to all parts of the city. And there was actually a really interesting report that Michael Hawthorne of the Chicago uh, Tribune wrote at the beginning of the pandemic, like a couple months into it, about how like most cities were seeing cleaner air. You know, uh, because mm-hmm. there was like less cars, there was like less, you know, less industry. But Chicago is actually seeing like dirtier air because of all. Really? Of, yeah, it was because of all of these like, you know, this like legacy of pollution in the south and west side. You know, all of these <laughs> warehouses that were that were being built in the southwest side, which still continue. You know, like Amazon is taking over and all these other logistic plants. Um, yeah. And so yeah, I mean, it's like this air affects everyone. It's just that like this community kind of becomes the filter for the worst the worst of it, right? So I think, yeah, even if you don't live in that community, it's even if like seeing black and brown like youth fighting this on the front line is not enough to move you, like the idea that actually this affects all of our Which air. how, but should. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. It's like, I don't know how you could hear these stories. Yeah, just like watch children and be like, yeah, it's cool. It's not me. I don't understand that. But yeah, even on a selfish level, if that's not enough. Also, a point to be made. Isn't 10th Ward the largest ward in Chicago? Yeah. So not by population density, but by land area is the largest Mm. in the city. And it it, it encompasses several neighborhoods, South Deering, Hedwish, uh, South Chicago, East Side, and, you know, uh, parts of like the Calumet River. And yeah, it's like, I, I, you know, I've been down there a lot because even, you know, I don't live there. I live in, in the north side. I live in the 33rd ward, but I go down there anytime that we have like a protest or some kind of like community event um, because like I've, you know, I've gotten to like know a lot of these folks like really well through like, you know, Zoom screens. So it's always nice to connect, obviously, like, you know, outdoors, you know, socially distant because we're still living in a pandemic. It sucks. But I think a lot of these protests were like, OK, so we have to be the best of the best. You know, even if they are not, even if police enforcement has their masks off, even if Trump supporter or whoever the case may be has their mask off, like we need to be the prime example so that people don't have any other excuse or reason to talk about anything else other than our purpose. It's like that's part of it as well. And it's also, you know, this slogan, we keep us safe, kind of emerged, uh, you know, as a response to like us as a community are the only ones that we can depend on. Because like you were saying, the politicians for the like for the most part are not there to listen to us. They have their own interests. Uh, You know, same with like legislations and all, you know, I mean, obviously the police specifically about 
the the uprising last summer and so it's only us as a community that can keep us safe but it also like relates to to this pandemic as well it's like we have to be there to look out for each other because the state failed us right like it has failed in offering like rent assistance so now millions of people are in danger of being evicted once these moratoriums run out fail to actually provide you know any kind of extensive financial aid you know it was for the longest time it was one check of twelve hundred dollars to keep your whole family afloat in a pandemic while you know the richest of the rich made a trillion dollars out of this pandemic it's just like absurd so clearly the status quo the 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 powers that be failed us so it's only us that can keep us safe and yeah i think that these protests kind of show that it's like we will have you know masks for anyone who doesn't have one hand sanitizer water snacks because a lot of these happen in the summer so want to make sure that people are staying hydrated you know having medics on hand trying your best you know yeah absolutely that slogan is the most chicago thing i've ever heard because i grapple with the love-hate relationship with this city i do love chicago but it is we protect each other we have each other's backs because no one else (laughs) not no one else but yes the within our government we see things that are lacking and i think a lot of times too you know we're the third largest city in the u.s and Chicago does have a reputation, but I always kind of ask people, what's your Chicago? You know, a lot of people that go and visit, they're seeing, you know, you're seeing with protests, all they have to do is put the bridges up and then close down train lines and people are stuck and can't get back home. And it's very, very specifically to not being able to get back West or back South, you know, or Southeast sides. So it's very much so marginalized in that way. So I know I kind of asked this earlier, what is your advice to people that want to get involved or how can people help? Because protesting is wonderful. I think we need all engines firing for actual legislation to pass and policies to change. What do we need? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I mean, so I, the most immediate way is by kind of staying informed, right? So I kind of, I help run some of the, the social media and communications around some of the groups in the Southeast side. And you, you mentioned earlier, there was a, a hunger strike that uh, was organized. We can probably talk about that a little bit more, but there was a couple of social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram um, at Shy Hunger Strike. I think became very active and gotten a, a good amount of following around the left in Chicago, but also you know anyone who's kind of invested in social justice. And so a lot of the stuff that's going on in the campaign gets posted through those. You know, if there's like a protest that we're organizing for or, you know, any kind of you know petition, that's the best way to get connected and the best way to kind of like know what the kind of next step is. As far as like what needs to happen, you know, the fight is to deny this permit. Right now, the latest is that last week, the city of Chicago and the Department of Public Health sent a letter of deficiency to RMG, the the new company that owns General Iron, to let them know that there were deficiencies in their permit application. So that means that, you know, it was incomplete or that there was like problems with some of the, the way that it was done. You know, we saw that as a minor victory because it meant that there wasn't a permit issued, right? But it also wasn't what we're asking for, which is denying this permit. The Illinois Environmental Protection Agency had already awarded one permit last summer at the beginning. There was another permit that was allowed by the city that gave gave them permission to be able to relocate there's some of like their essential equipment is the way that it's at. And this is actually pretty fucked up because mm-hmm. Allison Arwadi, who is the head 
of the Department of Public Health yeah. had already stated that the city was going to be transparent with the community anytime that there was a decision and that this permit was actually done behind closed doors and we only found out because of like an article on Block Club or something like that and so they had to apologize and it's all God, that. I love Block Club. Yeah, they're good. <laughs> Block Club and you know, you know, I think the Sun-Times and the Tribune can have like a very particular narrative <laughs> a lot of times that I think a lot of us disagree with. Yeah. But in this particular instance, Brett Chase who writes for the Sun-Times and Michael Hawthorne, who I talked about earlier, who are like the sort of uh, environmental policy and health journalists, mm. have done an incredible job covering this. Maxwell Evans from Block Club has also done a great job. And it's really been like a lot of this reporting from these uh, outlets that we normally don't look at as like friends of like the working class who have gone a long way in actually getting all this out there, you know, getting all this information around the permit, talking about how the owner of RMG saw this as like a done deal. So they were starting construction before they were even awarded this permit and talking about the role that the Rahm Emanuel administration played at the very beginning of it. The, the person who was the head of the Department of Public Health, Julie Morita, under, under Emanuel, basically like orchestrated an effort to like cover up the data that was being researched around the General Iron Facility in Lincoln Park that like was talking about how how dangerous this polluter is and they just basically were like yeah we're not going to publish that um what the hell so, oh i know it's 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 like the department of public it's something that Arwadi even said um like, yeah exactly right it's like not Chicago surprising politics. but unfortunate yeah 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 but recently Arwadi was asked you know in a press conference i think it was about the vaccination rollout and she was asked at the at the um, end of it, um, like, what is going on with the facility, with this permit? There's, like, people starving themselves. And also, like, you know, the mayor, Arwadi, like, never once, like, actually, like, attempted to meet with the hunger strikers, with the community. Um, and so it was through, like, these other events that journalists were asking questions. And, you know, her quote, you know, I'm going to have to paraphrase it, but it was something along the lines of, like, you know, at the same time that we're looking for the interest of public health we also have to look uh at the interest of like businesses and it's like you're you're not the head of the department of businesses right you're the head of the department of public health no like, <laughs> yeah exactly. this is in your job description this is your job title what the fuck man right and so because yeah. it's like stacked against us in that way um you know we saw we saw the 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 call to you know to kind of delay this permit as a victory. Also, you know, there was uh, several letters that came out um, with medical professionals and healthcare professionals um, signing on to a couple letters, something like 800 total people signed on, had a couple of press conferences that we helped put together, um, calling on Arwadi to say, as someone who is, you know, the highest ranking public health advocate, right, that's like what your job should be, like you need to stand with this community you know, that's talking about environmental racism, that's talking about these health issues. And I think that went a long way. Like I said, they didn't outright deny it. There's also some concern because in that letter that they sent to RMG scheduled a, a call with them to talk through the the deficiencies in the mm. permit. So it's like, okay, so you're just going to tell them what they did wrong so they can do it right again. But it was a, it was a, a minor victory. Continuing to follow the latest. And yeah, I mean, it's like there's, there's different policies that would go a long way, like having, you know, an actual air ordinance that is passed through the city that takes a look into like, like I was talking about the, cum the cumulative effect, the sort of like all encompassing effect of all of these industries when uh, issuing a permit. It's not just about cer certain guidelines that these specific facilities 
have to go through and, and pass. It's about every single facility that already exists and the, the effect they all have together, right? And having that be something that's considered when issuing these permits or like having an actual guideline on how you monitor things like diesel uh, exhaust from all these like trucks that are coming in and out of these new logistic facilities and warehouses that are being built and the impact that they have. And like, you know, uh, there's the, the Hilco uh, debacle. That was the, um, the warehouse in little village that was, there were, there were, um, uh, there was a, an, an implosion of this decommissioned coal plant that had been in the city for a hundred years, basically, and was decommissioned 10 years ago after almost 20 years of fighting against it. And so they were demolishing it to kind of begin this Hilco like warehouse project. And they, they fucked up. They, they botched it, covered the entire neighborhood of Little Village in ash and dust and coal and, and all of these toxins that have been built in for a hundred years. Uh, there was at least one death that came as a result of it. Um, a, 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 an older gentleman that had like respiratory problems uh, and, you know, ended up dying because of this to like completely disregard the role that all of these facilities like warehouses it's not just like pollutants like general iron or like the matte asphalt plant in mckinley park it's also these warehouses and all of all of everything like cumulative uh impact is everything that has to do with this so having actual legislation that takes a, a look at that the problem is that you know the people who write our legislation are you know in the pocket of these industries it's like George Cardenas, yeah. who is the head of the Department of the Environment in City Hall, is like a, a recipient of thousands of dollars from all of these major polluters. Yeah. And Sue Garza, who is the older woman of the 10th Ward, who, you know, was a former social worker in Chicago Public Schools. She like has lived in the 10th Ward her whole life, you know, was a, was a, a member of the CTU in the 10th Ward. Her dad, Ed Sadlowski, um, was, you know, a really well-known uh, labor organizer in Chicago, like she protested against Pet Coke. She campaigned on promising that the the Southeast Side was no longer going to be the city's dumping ground. She has been, you know, anything but an ally. She has been. She has not been vocal about this. She has not, you know, come out and said that she wanted to deny the permit. And through like our own research, we've seen that she has received thousands of dollars from the family that owns yep. General Iron. You know, and it's really sad to see this person who was at one point an ally of working class people in the whole city is now kind of been bought into the the structure, you know, the the, the machine as they call yeah. it. Yeah. Yep. And I think that's a big thing too, because especially when we have the largest pay gap in what, like a century or something, it's absolutely absurd. Like you said, people making trillions while other people trying to scrape pennies together. They can throw what seems to be a significant amount of money to people to silence them. And in actuality, that is the equivalent of pennies to them. They don't give a shit. They're like, yeah, we'll throw a couple thousand dollars and then this person will actually advocate for us on our behalf and try and trick people or maybe make them seem like it's not as big of a deal. And I've said this before, I say this all the time, but we have a real problem in our society that instead of being preemptive, we have this tendency of waiting and reacting. So until there's a certain amount of deaths, until things get a certain amount bad. And the Chicago hunger strike that you guys did, I know you did a day in solidarity. I did a day in solidarity. But there are people on hunger strike. 
how long, how many days was it in its entirety were they yeah. on the hunger strike? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, there was, so it kind of was like came in waves. So there was a total of around 12 or so long-term hunger strikers. The first three did it for the entire time. And it was 30 days. And then there was yeah. a couple of folks who, you know, joined a few days later. There was a couple who joined a week later. Um, Alderman Byron Sixio Lopez of the 25th Ward in Pilsen, um, who's like one of the best aldermen in the, in the that city. That was huge. Yeah, yeah. he like joined it and huge. did about a week and a half as well. So yeah, like all in all, it was a few dozen people who did it long term. Hundreds, like I mean hundreds, like at least 300, maybe even 400 that we know of that did one day solidarity hunger strikes from like the Chicago Teachers Union to the you know Chicago Democratic Socialists of America, which I'm a member of, you know, the Audubon Society, like bird watchers, you know, medical professionals, all of these That's people awesome. from from every area of, of the city were coming together and doing like one day solidarity hunger strikes. And it was, it was beautiful to see, but yeah, from beginning to end was 30 days. And, you know, we had meetings with some of the, the medics that were kind of like checking in on the hunger strikers. And uh, during the meeting that we, uh, you know, had as a coalition to kind of, you know, make the really difficult decision to, to end it. Like it wasn't easy to just be like, okay, you know, it's 30 days, like we're done. Right. It was, you know, the, this hunger strike, started because it was kind of seen as this last resort there have been over a year of you know public hearings of public comments of protests of petitions of anything you can think of and it was kind of like we need to escalate to have something to actually like show how drastic this is like it's a matter of life and death we have to treat it as such and the hunger strike kind of became that tactic, we talked with folks who were in the uh, hunger strike in 2015 to save Diet High School in the south side of Chicago, which Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor um, was, a, was a participant of, and talked with mm-hmm. like folks who were active around the hunger strike in 2001 in Little Village to save uh, the high school down there too. And it was like, it's risky because it's a pandemic. Some people don't have health insurance. Like we're people really putting their, their lives on the line, but it was like, Every single person in Southeast Side's life is on the line already because of all of these, uh, all of these things that we're talking about. There was a lot of really great coverage that came out of it. Like there yeah. was a, a Vice report, a Vice news report that just came out just today. Uh, Teen Vogue actually uh, ran an op-ed from two high school students. Uh, and in many ways, this has been like a youth-led movement as well. Like there's folks who've been around for years fighting, but there's also like literal freshmen in high school who are on the front line you know, protesting this. Yeah, it's, it's so empowering to see. And, it, you know, and one, it shows you that like the future of the community is in good hands, but also it's like these these youth are, are talking about how, you know, either they have asthma or like their their younger sibling has asthma. Like every, you know, their entire classroom has asthma. And it's like kind of shows you how real the impacts of all these things are. And yeah, and even like the, the high schoolers themselves had uh, a one day solidarity hunger strike and they like, combine efforts with students in the in the north side too it was just like i don't know anytime that i talk about all of this it almost like brings like tears to my eye just because once i got to you know I, I meetings almost every day um with the hunger strikers i was like helping them figure out like all these interviews and stuff and but also just hearing about how their day was editing all the videos that they were submitting around their check-ins and stuff and just like hearing how they were their memories was becoming hazy after a couple of weeks. They were like wow. not having the energy. Like most of the most of these folks 
were either still going to work regularly. A couple of them were teachers and were still teaching. You know, you know Chuck Stark, who was one, you know, one of the day one hunger strikers, went from immediately went from almost going on strike to fight for a safe reopening because Lori Lightfoot was trying to you know bully the teachers into putting their their life on the line yeah. to open schools. To like days later going on a month long hunger strike, and it's just like incredible. Unreal. Because I remember going, I'm in Humboldt Park, and we did the whole drive around Humboldt as a in protest because Lori Lightfoot bullied and pressured. It's like, here, take the people that are literally molding the mind of the next generation that you see fit to go back to work, yet all of your meetings are still virtual and you are protected and you are safe. People doing all of these things that are putting their lives on the line, literally throwing their bodies at the mercy of whether it's a hunger strike or to try and get somebody to notice what's going on and the urgency that is being exposed to these things, such as General Iron. It was absurd. But yeah, I talked to some people that were doing that and they're like, oh yeah, we're about to go on the hunger strike or we're on day two and I would run into them as I was doing a protest. And I'm like, "You are you good? I appreciate every single one of you and we need that, but it's also people need to wake the fuck up so it doesn't get to such a dire state. I think that's a big reason why the Chicago hunger strike, there has been a lot of notoriety around it. Like it did make a noise. I think it was extremely effective in pushing toward our overall goal, even though we do have more to go. Like there are these little victories getting the ball rolling more and more. Here are all these things that we have done. But there are people that have been screaming for over a year, and this has been a marathon for them, and they're just now starting to get whispers of what's actually going on. So do what you need to do to rest up, but like this is, it's not a sprint. <laughs> it's It needs to be continuous action because we are seeing yeah. people like you on the front line that have been doing this for a very long time. Um, and that Vice interview, I will link people to some of the information in Chicago Hunger Strike, but those are all really remarkable and insightful and exciting to see more people being exposed to that. Yeah. And I mean, that's really what it came down to when we had the, the, the meeting to decide that we needed to have like a plan to end the hunger strike was like, I think kind of went off track a little bit. And the medics were talking about how, you know, once you get to like a certain point, like once you get to like 20 days, you know, you start to run the risk of like, you know, organ failure or like heart failure, just like all of these things, these really scary things. And we kind of had to come to the conclusion that if we're actually going to have a successful movement, a successful struggle, that is going to not just win denying the permit, because it's like, like you were saying, a lot of times all of these things are, are reacting to something that's happening. So this like terrible thing that's happening. We actually want to like fight for a better vision of what an equitable Chicago would look like. What would it look like to actually have green infrastructure in the southeast side, in the southwest side. And so if we actually were going to have a successful movement to fight against the permit, to fight for this better vision, we need everyone to be able to be healthy and alive to do so. Once we got yeah. to like day 30 and all of these like really scary health outcomes, it just was like, no, we have to fight for another day. And yeah, it took looking through all the things that we had won, like the the different articles that were covering it, the different you know, aldermen, the different state reps, the different uh, people from all over the city, all over the country talking about denying the permit was huge uh, because a lot of these fights have to be won 
in public opinion too. You have to have overwhelming support because you're taking on this structure, this, you know, many times seems like unmovable structure that is the Chicago political machine, that is like the billionaires who fund all these developments. So like you need to have the masses on your side. And this hunger strike really got thousands of people on board. It kind of came down to looking at that, looking at these wins and realizing that, yeah, we have to, in order to fight for another day, we have to be alive to do that. That's kind of how it came. Yeah, I know that decision, you guys did not take that lately at all. But I, I definitely do think it's the right decision, you know, you have to ensure your health because especially as we're seeing, you know, if other people that should be caring about your health aren't like, you need to watch out for yourself. I'm kind of curious, have you heard anything from the people that were initially protesting and trying to get legislation passed and when it was uh, Lincoln Park? Have any of those people come forward as it's been moved to the southeast side? So how did they feel about it? And then how does Lori, how has Lori Lightfoot reacted or lack of reacted to this as well? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think that there's definitely like a segment of people in that area in Lincoln Park who like can't be bothered to think about anyone but themselves, right? But I think that that's only, I think it's a small amount of people. There was a lot of people who, you know, live in the second ward who were supportive since day one about this call to block the relocation. You know, there's a group called Clean the North Branch that has been very active in a lot of this work who were saying the same thing. We, you know, the sort of narrative that we're saying is if this isn't good enough for the north side, then it can't be good enough for the yeah. southeast side, right? For the south Not good side. Not enough for our city. Yeah. Yeah. And so these folks were saying the same thing. They were like, we kick General Iron out of our community, you can't put them in another community of working class black and brown folks. Like it wasn't good enough for us. It's not good enough for anywhere else where people live. That kind of like cross city solidarity was incredibly powerful. I think that, you know, we had a couple different like call-in campaigns uh, for people to call their, their alder person to explicitly like call on the city to deny the permit. And so the folks from from Lincoln Park, who, you know, are, are, are allies in the struggle, uh, definitely, like, did everything they could to, to call on Brian Hopkins, or Michelle Smith, I think is the other older woman, who also has parts of, like, Lincoln Park and Lakeview. And so, you know, they played a huge role in, like, getting getting the word out to politicians and trying to move them that way. Yeah, to answer your question, like, yeah, we, we did see a lot of support from folks who were trying to get this place, because they understand, like, they lived through decades of it. They don't want what they had to go through for another community. And then Lori, right? No. Like, what can you say about <laughs> Lori Lightfoot and her response or well. lack, lack of response? Like I was saying, months and months of protests. We even protested outside of her house back, back in the fall. There were city, you know, public hearings. There were all these things. It took a hunger strike for her to like even really acknowledge it. And even then it was half-assed. So the only... The, I was like, did she? Yeah. I didn't know her response. I thought she ignored it for I mean, a very long time. Might as well have ignored it. She, she put out a statement basically like, I hear you, I see you, but we're still going to like, you know, do whatever we want uh, kind of statement. Like, you know, I, we hear your concerns, but we also have to like hear the concerns of 
you know, this polluter. And that's kind of her MO. Just, of course, you know, it's like make her a meme and tell you to go inside, yet she's going to open capacity to 50% for bars and then not make sure that the workers are vaccinated or taken care of employment wise. And a minimum wage isn't raised, and we don't care about your unemployment, and you're bullied and forced back into going to work, even if they're not fair conditions. But here's this meme to tell people to stay home so people think I'm cool. And it's like, what? There is right. a disconnect. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah. And yeah, don't even get yeah. me started on the opening up restaurants. Like I do some restaurant organizing stuff too. I'm well aware of the role that she's played in putting the lives of service industry workers in at risk throughout this all. Yeah. The only time that she actually reached out or like, you know, in any way um, reached out, she actually had one of her staff first, I think it was the, the chief of staff, meet with the hunger strikers like two and a half weeks into the hunger strike on like a random Saturday morning to like hear the demands. And it's like, yo, the demand is deny the permit. There's a fucking hashtag. You know what the demand Very is. Clear. <laughs> you Very know? clear what it is. For the right. past year, it's been pretty consistent, guys. Right. So that there's was like one thing. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's other there's other issues that like we as a coalition are asking for, but like deny the permit is on like every flyer, right? It's on like you know, you don't need a meeting to find out what the demand is. But that was really the only time that there was any kind of effort from the city to talk with the hunger strikers, and it was never with the mayor herself. Was there any follow up after that? Uh, just the letter that I, that I mentioned, and that That's was it. it. Anytime that she was asked about it. Like similar to like the, the presser that I mentioned with Arwadi, it was like reporters who were asking about it during press conferences that were about something else. Because you have this newsworthy story that is like covered on The Guardian, on like covered on nightly news, and the city saying nothing about it. So reporters are like, yeah, like what, you know, what do you have to say about hunger strikers starving themselves for a month in your city? And she like, like I said, she basically like might as well have ignored it. There, there has to be a disconnect. Everything that's gone on, it's just become such a classist issue. There are people without insurance. There are people that can't pay their bills month to month to see that people are just scraping by to try and survive. Like You're kind of putting us between a rock and a hard place here. Not really sure what you expect us to do besides try and survive. And that's all that this healthy side is trying to do. Um, and they are lower income, so they don't have access to insurance and health care that other parts of the city may have. Yeah, no, I mean, that's an excellent point. We actually just had a protest in the 10th Ward. There was a series of protests that uh, were helped put together by the DSA um, around the fact that, you know, it came out that Lori Lightfoot spent $280 million of CARES Act money that was supposed to, like, go to pandemic relief and directed it to the police. Yeah, it was like, wasn't it something like 60%? Yeah. And then it was like that and then uh, sat on like another $80 million. And it's like that money could have gone to putting health clinics, right, in some of these communities, like public health clinics or like an actual vaccination program that could have started in December when the wealthy were starting to get their vaccinations. You know, you could have had $200 million could have gone a long way in getting everyone in, in, in the South and West Side vaccinated. You know, and people are still now scrambling to try to get their vaccine. And like you were saying, you know, places are opening up and people are still having to go into work without having access to vaccinations. When you look at, you know, they call it like the the one true map of Chicago, right? Where it's like, you know, poverty 
and all of these things, you know, it's all like concentrated in the south and barely west side. any vaccination. Yeah, exactly. And then when you look at like COVID deaths, lack of you know lack COVID deaths, like south and west side have like the majority of them, right? But the north side is the majority of the vaccinations, yep. and the south side has like none of you know almost none of it. Yeah, it's like those kinds of things could have actually been rectified by investing in these communities. But no, you give all of this money, like this, more than half of this of these funds to this institution that just went through, you know, it's like out of all the years to do it, you do it after, you know, there was this historic civil rights movement against police brutality. <laughs> like yeah. how, you know, you talk about a disconnect. Which I think that's kind of the point. Oh, yeah. I mean. Yeah. I think that's kind of the point, too, is you're doing it, you know, and that's that's the epitome of privilege. That's the epitome of why we're, you know, fighting against those things. Because even with everyone's eyes on you, you can still get away with this, you know. And I think Lori got a lot of votes behind her because she checked boxes. But if you looked at her politics, like her election was largely funded by Chicago Police Department. Those are things that her politics have always been sketchy. And the thing too is, even if you didn't care about black and brown communities or lower income families, if you had no heart, no soul whatsoever, coming from a standpoint of trying to enrich your entire city, bringing your entire city up, bringing the poverty line up, letting everybody get access to the same health care, having access to funds that would most likely be reallocated lower to middle class families. Like they tend to redistribute that money within their community, which then stimulates the entire growth of a community. And for someone to blatantly disregard that openly so that everybody can see is also just a failure on your part to see the benefits that that would ensue on the rest of your city if you were to reallocate those funds. A lot of work to be done, but also I'm, I will say I'm hopeful that people are doing that work. You know, people have more loyalty to one cause than another sometimes, and I think that's perfectly fine. We all need all engines firing. But, I mean, this has been amazing. I could talk to you about this forever. How are you coping mentally, physically, emotionally? I know you and your partner. You guys are involved in so much advocacy and so much activism. How do you find that balance? What are some things you do to help your mental and physical health to stay sane? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's also kind of a tough question because, like, sometimes... I think that that's one thing I struggle with is finding that balance. I think a lot of times I kind of just like cope by just throwing myself into like as much work as I can around this stuff. Part of it is because, mm -hmm. you know, it is like rewarding to be a, feel like you're a part of something bigger. And anytime that there is a win, you just say, like, just, I don't know, there is something to that that makes you keep going. And even if you, anytime if there's a loss, you regroup and you fight back even harder. So a lot of times, like, that's kind of my approach is I just, like, throw myself into as much. But it's also, like, that's a, a really good way to burn yourself out, you know? And like we were talking yeah. about the only way to keep this sustainable is by you taking care of and prioritizing your own well-being. I think that's one thing that I definitely need to do better on is, like, having a better balance, not putting myself through five hours of Zoom calls every day and then like go into an action the next day and then all this stuff. I try to, you know, I try to unplug sometimes. And when I do, it's like definitely reading a lot. You know, I'm a socialist, I've been an activist and organizer for 10 years. So definitely like reading about history, 
reading about, you know, different like theoretical things, reading about all of these past struggles and learning from them is something that like definitely helps kind of, you know, even if it's still political, like I, it kind of helps unplug a little bit. Honestly, like before the pandemic, like, you know, Mary and I would go to like, we would go to shows and like see live music almost every night. We would go to the movies every I once in a while. live concerts. Yeah, exactly. So and it's like that was taken away from us, yeah. you know, because of this. Yeah, all so, our coping mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. So we did, we did start kind of like wanting to see friends, you know, as safely as possible, you know, like doing outdoor hangs. But like we just went through a pretty brutal stretch of winter, uh, which like that wasn't even possible. So definitely hoping to like get to the <laughs> habit of doing that again. So that and then, you know, I also, you know, whenever I really want to unplug, I just like watch a bunch of professional wrestling or like hate watch the Cubs. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Or like, you know, yes. yeah, like watching baseball. But it's like, like I'm saying, like I have a, I have a love-hate relationship with baseball. I have a, a Cubs tattoo that I got the day after they won the World Series. And like I grew up loving that team. But like, you know, the Ricketts family are like best friends of, of you know, Trump and have done all these yeah. terrible things are mismanaging the team like in just just horrifying ways. So they basically like, you know, I like to joke that the Ricketts have like jokerified me into like now I only watch the Cubs <laughs> to watch them burn. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carlos, this has been amazing. I genuinely could talk to you all day if I really wanted to. But thank you so much for coming on this podcast. <laughs> I really appreciate you. Um, if you want to learn more about Carlos, you can find him. His Instagram handle is when bears attack. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an underscore. There's an underscore. There's somewhere. an underscore. I'll put it. I'll put it in the comments once I post up the podcast. Um, also, as far as stopping general iron handles from Instagram, if people want to go and follow them, that would be a good resource. Yeah. I would, so I would definitely say uh, at shy hunger strike on Instagram and Twitter. That's how I find And then, yeah, keeping an eye on the. On the hashtag, deny the permit, stop general iron. Those are really like the best ways to kind of see the latest. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it, Carlos. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. So much fun. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm.